Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of BTK. It's day number two here at the ACP GBI here in beautiful Dublin, Ireland. Shreya, we've had a wonderful time so far and had actually wonderful weather. Yeah, the weather today is great and we're going to be kicking off this morning with an excellent lecture um, that's named BDRF lecture that's going to be given by Dr. Ronan O'Connell. Dr. O'Connell is actually the uh, vice president of RCSI here and he's going to be delivering a great lecture um, on papers that have changed colorectal practice. Yeah, Ronan has done a fantastic job. He's been on multiple editorial boards and really has a command of the literature talking about some of the most important papers. After that, uh, we got a very good session on advanced malignancy, talking about uh, some upcoming trials that have really changed some practice parameters to include the Prodigy 7, about cytoreductive surgery versus HIPAC, surgery for pelvic recurrence by Dr. Ian Jenkins, and kind of just talking a little bit about um, a, a panel about what we do with these complex patients. Yeah, we're going to be uh, hopefully have some snapshot interviews coming with Dr. Nicola Fernhead, Ian Jenkins, who will be dis uh, discussing pelvic recurrence, and Dr. Royal Hompas, who's going to be discussing some pelvic surgery emergency, a topic that's definitely a difficult one for the residents. As we round out this, we'll have the colorectal disease lecture uh, by Dr. Pearl Nelson, who's going to talk about watch and wait for um, for rectal cancer following neoadjuvant therapy, as well as some of the traveling fellows. Um, the ASCRS traveling fellow, uh, Dr. Jennifer Davids from UMass, is going to talk a little bit about um, about uh, gender discrimination uh, in, uh, in lectures and in other ones. Also, the CCSSANZ uh, traveling fellow, Tim Chittleborough, and the BDRF research traveling fellow, Julie Cornish. Yeah, Dr. Davis will be also joining us for a quick interview, so watch out for that one. So uh, let's kick this off here in uh, day number two, ACP GBI. Our first guest here today is Dr. Peter Wan Shaw. He's the vice president of Duke's Club and a colorectal trainee. Welcome on Behind the Knife. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Um, so could you tell us a little bit briefly about what Duke's Club um, is and how it's related with ACP? Of course. So the Duke's Club, we're a UK network for colorectal surgical trainees. Uh, we founded uh, over 20 years ago. Uh, we have an active membership of trainees across the UK and beyond uh, regular meetings several times a year. And our focus is training uh, and colorectal surgery. All right. And as part of Duke's Club, um, in tomorrow's meeting, uh, you are going to be discussing your closet study. Would you mind kind of giving me a quick overview of how what this closet study is about and what were your primary results? Of course. So we wanted to know really why people were getting their ileostomies closed so late after their anterior sections. Um, this is a major concern in the UK. Uh, Emerging data suggests that delay to closure actually impacts your bowel function uh, once you have your reversal, so uh, increase of low anterior section syndrome, uh, and therefore impacts your quality of life. This was purely uh, you know, a systems-based um, approach uh, to investigate the factors that might 
cause delay. And we wanted to uh, use the, the sort of mechanism of, of colorectal trainees across the UK uh, to look at uh, patients uh, in this cohort. So we, we uh, branded the Close It study. This was the first uh, research study of, of the Dukes Club. Uh, we formed the Dukes Club Research Collaborative and used social media to you know, really infuse and engage colorectal trainees across the UK. Um, we the primary aim was to look at how long it just takes you to get your ileostomy closed after an anterior resection and what factors might uh, influence that delay to closure so that we can take it forward and try and actually streamline pathways and improve um, post-operative pathways for patients, get their ileostomies closed sooner and hopefully improve thereby quality of life and bowel function. Um, so what is your standard right now after an LAR, um, standard time frame to ileostomy closures? So this therein lies the problem. So within the UK there are cancer targets and, and by that we mean uh, if you get diagnosed with a colorectal cancer the expectation is that within a certain time frame um, you uh, should have your operation. But thereafter there are no further targets. So there is no standard of care for your uh, closure after an AR. Um, and what uh, the National Bowel Cancer Audit Project has shown us is there's significant variation uh, across the UK in, in terms of you know, the average time. The, uh, the Bowel Cancer Audit report um, suggested that around um, uh, up to 30% still have their stoma at 18 months. Um, so clearly, you know, that's a long time. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is something that we wanted to, to have a look at in detail in closure. What we found was that median time to closure was nine months, okay. uh, which is a long time. Uh, when I'm talking to patients, I say, you know, the bowel is like any muscle. If you don't use it, it gets a bit floppy and useless. Uh, you know, and, and that's my understanding, effectively, my very basic understanding of the physiology. If you don't use your bowel, it's, it's going to be uh, not very helpful when you sort of reconstitute um, uh, you know, your anatomy. Uh, so median time and nine months, you know, significant variation, anything from sort of four months to 16 months across the UK. The question is why, you know, clearly if someone's having adjuvant chemotherapy or if they've had a leak, there's going to be a delay. You know, we're not going to be able to influence that necessarily. But what we were keen to identify were factors that we think we think we can influence. You know, when do you book your patient for your reversal? Do you do that once you've seen them in the clinic, once they've had their gastrographic enemina, uh, or do you do that when they're walking out of the hospital after their LAR? And these things really do actually impact the time uh, to closure. When, when can we expect the study to be out by, or is it out already? So we're, we're presenting the results uh, tomorrow morning, so Tuesday morning, the research plenary session, uh, and we're, we're preparing the manuscript, um, uh, hopefully for later on this year. And uh, there's sort of some uh, sort of spin-off pieces of work. We're doing some qualitative analysis of those units which actually perform really well. Uh, so we, we want to try and learn lessons from the people who are doing it well. Uh, and then that will, that will sort of throw off, hopefully, some consensus guidelines. And ultimately, our aim would be actually to say to the people who make the big decisions in the government, actually, we think this should be within the cancer targets. Very good. So we're very pleased to have uh, Professor Brendan Moran, the president of ACP GBI here. who has been a consultant surgeon at Basingstoke since 1995. He qualified for the University College Cork. Uh, in 1980 and obtained FRCSI in 1984. Been a part of a lot of journals, a lot of things. And Brennan, thanks so much for joining us on PTK.
Thank you very much. It's a very exciting venture, this Behind the Knife, isn't it? It's quite fascinating. Well, we sure appreciate the opportunity to be here and to cover the meeting. So first of all, congratulations on your presidency. Thank you very much. Can you tell our listeners a little bit out there about just because we get... So we got a lot of listeners, 143 countries all over. Tell us a little bit about the um, about the society itself and kind of what's been your vision for the society, and then specifically a little bit about some of the highlights of this meeting. The, the society is is only in existence for about 30 so over 30 years. Uh, it was a a spin-off of what was called the section of Coroportology, the Royal Society of Medicine, which is a London organization. So about uh, 30 years ago. Jeff Oates, our first president, uh, formed the Association of Corporatology of Great Britain and Ireland to include Ireland and uh, as well as as, uh, as Great Britain. So it's uh, it's a small we're small islands globally, but I think with a big impact on uh, on colorectal surgery all over the world. I hope uh, we, you know, we are the country where uh, Cuthbert Dukes. Uh, was the, the Duke's classification of rectal cancer in London. St. Mark's London is one of the leading centers in the world for colorectal, all forms of colorectal surgery for many, many years. And um, uh, we in the organization represent about that 1,200 surgeons across Great Britain and Ireland are members of our organization. And we uh, have a long tradition of doing not just elective colorectal cancer, but in fact provide a lot of the emergency general surgery across the British Isles. Uh, so the organization is, is developing as we go. We've got a very uh, active uh, Dukes Club, which is, born, which is named after Cuthbert Dukes of the Dukes classification, A, B, C, D, he never, he never described D. Uh, so the Dukes Club is a very active, and we were really delighted when when uh, Dina Harji, who is who is the uh, president of Dukes, and Henry Ferguson, the previous president, said we should uh, invite uh, Professor Scott Steele and Shreya for on behind the knife uh, to to come and join in our conference, and it seemed a perfect opportunity for us. In my term, I had in- introduced the annual Dukes lecture, and um, Scott, you've kindly agreed to give the lecture tomorrow, and. Uh, I think on the whole aspect of training and being trained, I consider myself at the end of my career, but I'm still learning, developing, and I think that's what we should be doing. So I think we, 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 a lot of my, a lot of my, my career has been spent in, in actually promoting surgical, optimal surgical technique. I was very fortunate to work with Professor Bill Heald in Basingstoke for my last uh, 25 years of my life uh, we've worked together uh, so I have taken on the mantle of TME and TME training and development uh, I've also worked with Gina Brown, Phil Quirk and we set up a, a rectal cancer assessment and training across uh, UK and Ireland and outside there so I was very fortunate to be part of the development and refinement of MRI as part of the Mercury study, working with Phil Quirk on on, um, on uh, uh, pathological assessment and so on, and it's been a fascinating career. And we've we've run a number of uh, training programs, which is why I'm very interested in the concept of uh, behind the knife because we tried to do this with workshops on uh, in, in on total mediastinal excision on rectal cancer. 
significant polyps. And currently, the program with Nicola Fernhead is is uh, is developing and running with with Pelican, where I come from, is the Impact program. So, and the the the, the meeting, our our annual meeting, is an annual event. We 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 move the meeting around Great Britain and Ireland. So next year it's in Scotland and Edinburgh, which is a very exciting city to be in as well. So we, we are um, looking forward to that. We we have approximately uh, 800 uh, participants, delegates to this meeting, uh, and uh, it's there are a big trainee group. Uh, the Duke's Club are a very active part of the meeting. We have a patient liaison group who have their own separate meeting, but also interact in our meeting. We have a we have our nursing group for a separate program, and we have a lot very large uh, focus on education training, but also research. Uh, with our uh, we had a very 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 nice research meeting this morning, but which went on for about two hours. But uh, the trials either about to be published or in development. Well, I know it's been an absolutely fantastic meeting so far. And uh, in addition to all the things you're doing, you run probably the largest and busiest um, cytoreductive and HIPEC program in the world. So um, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Congratulations on a fantastic year and a fantastic meeting so far. And thanks for joining us on Behind the Knife. I'm now joined with Dr. Dale Vimalachandran. Uh, welcome on Behind the Knife. Um, Give Thank us you. a little brief intro of like uh, where you're practicing here and uh, your upcoming hip study lecture that's in a few minutes here at the ACPGBI. Great. Well, thanks very much for the invitation. So I'm a colorectal surgeon in Chester, which is in the northwest of England. I trained in the northwest of England from medical school and uh, actually did research in pancreatic cancer, but decided that colorectal cancer was the cancer that I wanted to concentrate on. Uh, so I was appointed in Chester in 2010. My main interest is rectal cancer surgery, but I also have an interest in research and trials. So I have scientific interest and uh, clinical research interest, and that was the basis of the HIP study. So the HIP study really was a trial born out of clinical practice in terms of the patients that I was operating on and some of the complications I saw. So these were particularly, and we've heard a lot in the conference about frailty in elderly patients. We know it's a population that is increasing. And in fact, the talk that we had before uh, uh, earlier on in the day was discussing the fact that for a lot of these patients who have a rectal cancer, we want to remove the rectum, but we don't want to join the bowel ends back up together because either they're frail or their sphincter function is poor. So uh, having done that and we had a particular operation we did in Chester and I sort of saw complications to think I'm not sure this is the right operation. I surveyed the whole of the ACP membership and said what are you guys doing and it was about 50-50. 50 people would do one particular procedure and 50% would do the other. So there was no clear preference and if you went to the literature to look for some evidence to support the decisions there was none there was no prospective evidence there were small series retrospective data set that suggested perhaps this one procedure the intersphincteric APE was a better procedure than the Hartman's procedure so that was the basis of, of the HIP study uh, we were really fortunate that Bowel Disease Research Foundation uh, sponsored and fund, sorry, funded the study uh, and also funded a travelling fellowship for me to go around the country selling this sort of study to people and promoting it, which is really what allowed us to get 36 centres recruiting to the study. That's amazing. Yeah, it's huge numbers. 
Is the study now closed and ready to be published? Study's just closed. Okay. Uh, it, it closed uh, last month in May. We've mm-hmm. got a couple more months of quality of life data, and it's. I think again, you know, and the association has really been behind this, and we're moving away from fixed surgical outcomes to more patient-reported outcomes. So we definitely wanted to get quality of life data. Um, so we've got a couple more months for that data to come back in the final few patients. So uh, sneak previews at all? Uh, yeah. Can you give us anything? Is there anything surprising about it? I think it probably, and I like a lot of things, you know, people tell you what they think, but there's no data to show it. Mm-hmm. And I think the HIP study now will back what people think. In other words, there are still more people doing Hartman's procedure because they perceive it to be easier. Uh, but the pelvic abscess rate is is there. Uh, it's perhaps not as high as we thought, um, at about fifteen percent. But it's definitely higher. And if you look at the two procedures, the the severity of complications is worse with the Hartman's procedure than an intrathoracic APE. So how do you take a study like this and implement it in terms of changing practice? And how do you do it in a system like the UK? And just yeah, how do you spread the word and yeah. get people to buy in? Yeah, no, and absolutely, it's that. That's the key thing, and that's what I wanted HIP to do. I wanted it to change practice. Um, I think you know, obviously, presenting at the conference like this, and we, you know, is obviously a big part. But actually, in the UK, we have the ACPs separated into chapters, so each region will have a chapter arm where you can go and present study so I'll probably try and go around the country I haven't gone to all the chapters to say this is a study we want to do I'm now going to go back to the chapters and say right we've run the study thanks to you this is what we've seen and and try and get involved in discussions it's you know it's not absolute level one evidence because we know it's difficult and as a lot of people said randomizing to surgical studies is difficult so it's a prospective cohort study so there are limitations with that but there's a signal in those 200 patients that this may be the way forward that's interesting. That um, I think that was a great snapshot of your upcoming uh, lecture, and we're looking forward to it. Congratulations great. on a great study. Lovely. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Professor Per Nielsen, who's going to deliver the colorectal disease lecture. Per is currently the, the uh, president of the European Society of uh, Coloproctology, and he's past president of the Swedish Society of Colon and Rectal Surgeons. He's associate professor and Senior Lecturer at the Karolinska Institute. Per is widely widely published, with his principal focus being on malignant disease. He's going to talk on watch and wait and surgery for tumour regrowth after neoadjuvant therapy for rectal cancer. Thank you. So thank you very much for that very kind introduction. It is uh, it is a true pleasure to be here at the annual meeting of the of the uh, Association of Coloproctology of Great Britain and Ireland, and it's an honor to give the colorectal disease lecture. I have one disclosure slide. So I wanted to stay start by saying that I've traveled uh, quite a long way to come here to Dublin, Ireland. And uh, I travel partly as a representative of the European Society of Coloproctology. And I I don't want to interfere with things or or cause any unrest, but I want to urge all of you, all members of the ACP, to remain in the European Society of Coloproctology. On a more more serious note, I would like to say that um, 
the European society really acknowledges the uh, contributions that various members of the ACP GBI has, has uh, given to Europe over, over the years. We've had hugely successful presidents, secretaries, treasurers, chairs of various committees that have all come from ACP membership and have contributed uh, enormously. And still today, we have several chairs in our executive that we are uh, happy to have on board, and we hope that this will continue in the future. So back to the topic then. Um, I think most of you uh, are familiar with this classic paper that came out from Norman Nigro that really was a paper that changed the paradigm on how we treat anal cancer. And more or less exactly 40 years later, the first report came out from Brazil on non-operative treatment for rectal cancer. Now we are... 15 years down the line from that very first paper, and I think we can have today different perspectives on organ preservation in rectal cancer. There is one track where you use upfront chemoradiotherapy with the aim of clinical complete response. There is the other track where you treat your patients according to your guidelines, and then if there is a clinical complete response, then you consider putting the patient into a, a watch-and-wait strategy. We also talk about a watch-and-wait strategy without any surgical intervention whatsoever, and there are also programs where we use local excision as an integrated part in a, in a program. Personally, I only have experience of those within the red line, but I will try to say something about all of this during my talk. So if we start now with um, recently published data from the Brazilian group on upfront chemoradiotherapy, uh, you can see they had 81 patients over a 15-year period. These were early rectal cancers, T2 and not. And they treated, in the beginning, they treated patients with standard chemoradiotherapy, but in the later period, they had an extended uh, treatment that included more radiotherapy and, in particular, more chemotherapy. And they could see they had generally very high response rates, but if they had an extended treatment, the, the complete uh, response rate was close to 90%. They operated five patients within a year, and after a full or total follow-up, 38 patients were operated. So then you can say that 38 out of 81, that's almost 50% that were operated. But a significant proportion of those only had a local excision. So organ preservation was possible in, say, three-quarters of the patients in that, in that uh, series. Uh, in this report, they also introduced the concept of surgery-free survival, and there was a significant difference between those that had received standard chemoradiotherapy and those that had received the extended treatment. But when they just took out the patients, the ones that actually had a clinical complete response, there was no difference in the outcome f with regards to surgery-free survival. So I think we can... There, there are two conclusions that we possibly can draw from this paper, it is that definitely your complete response rates can be increased if, increased if you intensify your therapy. But it seems that how, whichever way you use to achieve 
or obtain a complete response, it seems that your, your outcome is similar uh, once you have uh, achieved the clinical complete response. There is also a prospective uh, observational study that came out of Denmark. They included 51 patients, also fairly uh, early rectal cancers, distal tumors, and they were in, uh, treated intensively with a high dose of external beam radiotherapy on top of that brachytherapy and with concomitant chemotherapy. They also had a very high uh, response rate with complete, complete response in, in close to 80%. But if you look at the paper uh, closely, you see that out of those 51 patients that were put into the, to the program, actually you could say if you want, that uh, almost 40% were actually non-responders. So a significant proportion of these that were aimed for, for a non-operative treatment were, so to say, non-responders. And, and also, I think we must consider that uh, we don't have much uh, data on these patients with regard to surgical and functional outcome. And these are patients that potentially could have undergone uh, TME surgery without any neoadjuvant chemoradiotherapy. So they received treatment that uh, may not have been necessary. So I think the concept of upfront chemoradiotherapy for early rectal cancers, yes, it can uh, offer a possibility for organ preservation, but we have to keep in mind that for a significant proportion of the patients, you add on a unnecessary and potentially harmful treatment in the form of chemoradiation. And I think this is a true dilemma for, for this group of patients that we have to think more about. So then if we look uh, the other way around, so that you treat your patients according to guidelines and, um, and then just select the ones in whom you see that there is a, a complete response. First of all, how often does it happen? Well, if you look at a number of randomized rectal cancer trials, I've listed a number of them here. You, these trials were all mainly des, uh, designed to, to reduce local recurrence, but they have presented their, their pathological complete responses. And we see it ranges between 15 and 20%. So this YPCR rate theoretically reflects the rate of complete response, clinical complete response. So one out of five, we could find a, one should expect to be able to find a, a clinical complete response in. So it is very important then to assess your patient carefully after the neoadjuvant treatment. And the tools you have to try to decide whether there is a complete response or not is the, the educated finger or the bioprobe endoscopy and MRI. And, and I think it's uh, important to use both T2-weighted and diffusion-weighted images uh, to help you uh, decide whether there is a clinical complete response. Now, your, the endoscopic image can be very variable in these cases, and it can be very difficult to, to decide whether there is a complete response or not. There are some criteria, but at the end of the day, it is, it is a call to see whether it whether you think it's a complete response or not. You do have another tool, and that's time. You can use time. 
because it was shown some years ago, this is uh, operated patients, and it's data from Holland, showing that um, the, the rate of YPC, y, YPCR is, um, is uh, dependent on how long you wait until you do your surgery. So this is, this is time from the start of chemoradiotherapy, but when they were, if you operate the patient after, after say, uh, 12 weeks, you get 10%, but if you wait longer, your rate of complete response uh, increases. And another Dutch group has investigated this in a number of patients in more in the context of a wait-and-watch strategy, and they had 68 patients that they felt were not complete response, but it was a near-complete response. And, and these among these 68 patients, 49 opted for a second restaging, after an additional time period. And as you can see, a significant proportion of those moved from a near-complete response into a uh, clinical complete response after a second staging. So time matters. The optimal time, then, what is the optimal time? Well, again, if we try to learn from anal cancer, we have gradually extended the time. And in this guideline, you see we can now wait up to six months before we do our final decision, whether it's a responder or not in anal cancer. But do we know, do we know what time it is actually we should have in rectal cancer? Um, the French group, uh, Grecar group, has done the Grecar 6 trial where patients with rectal cancer were randomized to have surgery either 7 or 11 weeks after, after, um, their uh, chemoradiation. But as you can see, there, there was no clear pattern. They could not really see uh, if, if that had an effect on, on uh, the, the PCR rates. Using the Stockholm 3 data, there's also been an attempt to tease out whether there's a difference in PCR rates with, if you wait longer or shorter, and they, they've used the concept of overall treatment time. So maybe this is a, a little bit of a difficult slide, but these here patients, they were randomized to short-course radiotherapy with immediate surgery, and uh, more green ones here, they had short-course radiotherapy with delay, and and obviously these patients had a longer overall treatment time. But then once trying to look at complete response rates in, in these groups. Again, there was no clear pattern, no, no statistical significance. So there weren't any answers from, from these studies where they've tried to investigate the, how, how time impacts your response rates. So I would say that we still don't really know what is the best time when to assess patients after after chemoradiotherapy or, or short-course radiotherapy. So then, if we have a patient with a good, although not complete, clinical response, should we then use local excision for these patients to remove the, the scar or the tiny remnant tumor? Well, I think the first thing that comes to my mind is then what is the risk of lymph node involvement because you won't remove the lymph nodes with a local excision. And I take any opportunity to show some data from the Swedish colorectal cancer registry. So I, I show some here. 
again. And as you can see, as we all know, the, the proportion of patients with, with uh, pathological lymph nodes increases with increasing T-stage. And, and these authors also, despite having small numbers, could see that also in T1 and T2, T2 tumors, they, the, the, the rate of lymph node involvement increases if you have if you have adverse features like uh, poor differentiation or vascular invasion. Some may argue that, well, if the tumor responds to, to chemoradiotherapy, so, so should the nodes. But if we look again at data that we can take out of the Stockholm 3 trial, we could see that among patients that had received Short course, short course radiotherapy with uh, a delay, uh, we saw a, a significant uh, drift towards lower, lower T stages. So these seem to, the, the T stage seemed to respond very clearly to the radiotherapy. But when you look at the YPN stage, it's a much more blurred picture and it's not at all as clear and I think it's fair to say that we cannot just assume that all the components of a tumor will respond identically to to all treatments so it, it's it's a false assumption if you think that everything will respond similarly when we're talking about local excision uh, I'm sure that the Star Trek will provide some answers, but uh, I will not dwell on this study. We don't have any results, and but we're looking forward to them. We do have some data available from from France, and it's the the Grecker II trial, where patients patients were treated with chemoradiotherapy, and then if if they were good responders, they were randomized to either. Um, they were randomized to either uh, uh, local excision or TME. And they were able to include 148 patients, and, and, and half of them were uh, randomized or assigned to local excision. And among those with local excision, they had 38 with a uh, T0, T1, R0 that they were put into observation. During follow-up, they had uh, four out of 39 with a local recurrence after their local excision, and they were able to salvage three of those to R0 with TME surgery. They also present a, a uh, disease-free survival curve where there is no significant difference. There seems to be no difference at all between patients randomized to TME versus local excision. Now... I find the Grecker II trial a little bit difficult to read and understand. One thing is that they used a composite primary endpoint, including death, recurrence, major surgical morbidity, and severe complication. It's, it's a difficult endpoint, I think. Composite endpoints are always difficult to interpret. And then if you look, if you look into the 74 patients that were assigned to local excision, you can see that one patient had TME to start with, and as I showed on the previous slide, out of these 39 patients, three went on to have TME. So if you, if you count all of it together, you see that 74 patients were randomized to local excisions, but 30 out of them, that is 40%, 
actually underwent TME. So then this also poses, I, I, this also gives you difficulties in interpreting the data, I think. Now, a few words. Yes, we do have a watch and wait protocol in Stockholm. We have decided to not change our indications for neoadjuvant uh, treatment. So we do not do upfront chemoradiotherapy. But we have intensified our assessment. We are actively looking for complete responders. And as I said, we use clinical evaluation, MRI. We have a mandatory specialized MDT board. And those that are thought of, assessed as having a clinical complete response are followed up very closely. So... Until March this year, we have had 97 patients referred to us as potential uh, complete responders. But after re-evaluation and then re-evaluation in some, we have 62 patients that we have put into the program. And you can see about half of the patients had chemoradiotherapy, whereas half of the patients had short-course radiotherapy with or without chemotherapy. Some of these patients are rapido patients. Um, we have detected regrowth in nine patients with a follow-up, with a quite a long medium follow-up. Uh, among those nine patients, we have performed salvage TME in eight out of those. So this leads us in to a few words about regrowth. And I think it's important that we use the word regrowth when you're in a watch and wait program because I think we should reserve the word recurrence. You get recurrence after surgery. You get regrowth when it has disappeared and then it reappears. Uh, There are data. We saw some data from this study earlier today. Uh, here from the UK, from Manchester. And I think this graph beautifully illustrates that the majority of the regrowth come during the first year, but they keep on coming year two, year three at a slower pace, but they do occur. So you, this, this tells us that we have to closely monitor patients. There are data from the International Watch and Wait database that were published uh, last year, and it's quite quite a big series of patients, uh, close to 900 patients from 15 countries. But you can see here, the local regrowth rate is 25%. The majority, again, within two years. The good news is that almost 90% of these regrowth were, they were managed to salvage with surgery. But I would still say, you see the overall survival for those with regrowth. It is different from the the overall uh, survival in the in the entire group. The authors conclude that um, uh, watch and wait is an alternative with very little oncological risk. I think the words "very little" give some some space for interpretation, but that's how they they write it in this paper. Um, so then if you have a regrowth and you go on to do your salvage TME, is it different? Is it more difficult? Well, we don't really know that as of yet. But again, if we look uh, at some data from the Grecar 6 trial, you remember where they randomized between waiting 7 or 11 weeks 
before doing their surgery, there was a, a, a um, significantly higher overall morbidity and a significantly higher rate of medical complications when you waited 11 weeks compared to 7 weeks. And perhaps, uh, perhaps even more uh, disturbing is that the, there was a significantly worse quality of the mesorectum in the specimen if you waited 11 weeks compared to, to 7 weeks. So this may be an indication that waiting longer could make things more difficult. Um, very recently, data came from Champollemont in Lisbon, where they looked at their consecutive series of patients uh, treated at that institution, and they've chosen to compare 46 patients, 46 patients that were operated after their neoadjuvant treatment with 23 patients that were put into a watch-and-wait program and then had a regrowth. And they could, in, in this comparison, not find any significant differences with regards to complications after surgery or with pathology outcomes. So there was no difference in, in that series. I just recently stumbled on this uh, abstract. It's from the Netherlands, and and it's, it's an abstract, so it's short. But they had uh, two prospectively collected cohorts with a follow-up of two years and a 21.3% uh, rate of local regrowth. As you can see, they could salvage almost all patients, and a significant proportion of the patients were salvaged with a local excision. And um, their overall three-year survival is excellent, I think one should say. Uh, naturally, we are eagerly awaiting the full report from this abstract. We do then have a small experience of, of doing surgery for regrowth. Uh, I told you we had nine regrowth. We've done surgery in eight patients. Um, the median operating time for us has been six hours, which is uh, not short. There is a significant blood loss in the patients, and we've had our fair share of complications in these eight patients. And um, furthermore, we've, we've achieved R0 in, in seven patients, so you could say that we have a 12.5% R1 rate in these eight patients that we have operated on. So to come to some conclusions then, I absolutely think that non-operative treatment or management of rectal cancer is here to stay. This is something that we will have to live with uh, uh, now and in the future. Definitely you can in increase your, your complete response rates if you intensify your treatment, but on the other hand you will have more toxicity. We have a lot more to learn. Uh, how should we do upfront chemoradiotherapy this is an area where we know too little, to, and I think if we do that, we should do it within trials, not just do it for patients. We need to learn more about timing between radiotherapy and surgery. We need to tease out more about the role of local excision in a organ preservation strategy. Um, it is clear that you have to follow up these patients closely because there is a, a, a significant regrowth rate. The good news, as I said, is 
the vast majority of patients can be salvaged. But I, I think it's fair to say that there are indications to say that salvage surgery is more difficult than your ordinary planned uh, TME surgery. Absolutely, I haven't touched on that, but definitely we need more research into the tumor biology so that we can predict responders better in the future and learn more about that. And I think that it's important so that we learn, all of us, watch and wait patients should be registered and preferably in the international registry. I think today now you can say that a colorectal surgeon must have a dual capacity. We must be able to deliver excellent surgery to those patients that need surgery, but we must also learn to, together with our MDT team, treat patients non-operatively. And this this uh, dual capacity necessary, I think it was put in a nutshell by a, a great Irishman. Um, I took this picture the other day, Phil Linnott, he was a rocker, he was a roller, and I think as colorectal surgeons we need to be that as well. Thank you very much. Hello again. Right now I am joined with Dr. Wol Humphus. <laughs> Welcome on Behind the Knife. And please tell our audience, how do you say your first name again? Well, first, thank you very much for the invitation. It's really a, a great honor to be on Behind the Knife, and you pronounce it Roll. Awesome. In English, rule and Flemish. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for that. Um, if you wouldn't mind giving us a brief introduction and how are you here at the ACP? So I was invited by uh, the, the meeting's president, Brandon Moran, to give a talk about uh, TA, TME and things you wish to knew you things you wish to know about this uh, this procedure. Uh, I'm a colorectal consultant working in, in the Netherlands at the University Hospital uh, at the AMC. Um, my training I've done prominently in Belgium and Leuven and then I did fellowships and in, in one year in Leuven uh, in Oxford and Basingstoke and started my surgical career as a consultant in Oxford and then uh, moved two years ago to the uh, to the AMC. So you've been a kind of one of the leading thought leaders as well as, well as implementers in terms of the TATME. And uh, one of the fascinating things, obviously you've come to Cleveland a few different times and uh, taught courses and done other things and traveled around the world to be able to do this. Can you talk a little bit about, first a little bit of background about TATME and then just about implementing of new techniques and new practices and some of the good things about that and some of the dangers? So yeah, I think TATME is sort of perceived as a new procedure, but it actually isn't. It's sort of an amalgamation of existing techniques that was just there. You had the TATA procedure, of course, a TME principle, but you had also the transanal TAMIS and, um, and um, TEM. Um, and sort of when we, that concept was sort of uh, brought forward in the lab, by, I think predominantly by Patricia Silla and Mark Whiteford, with the first case being clinically done in Barcelona in 2009. And from then it just took off. People got interested in it. And we sort of also got interested in it uh, ourselves by doing lab work on, on cadavers to see whether or not we could do robotic transanal procedure. And then we sort of flipped the patient and saw, hey, we can do also this back TME dissection quite easily transanally. So that's where we started in Oxford. But quite quickly in the UK, we realized that we needed to do this in a more organized way. And that's sort of how the registry 
came about because we have sort of nice guidance in, in, the, in the UK. It's a national governing body that sort of, particularly for newer technologies, wants you to sort of build a framework to introduce it. And one of the things that was really crucial, I think, was a registry to try and capture all the early data. And that's also part of the ideal framework uh, that you can use to introduce new technology. And that sort of is part of the development there, uh, uh, phase of uh, ideal, where you sort of introduce that registry to, to capture all that data. Um, and I think we try to adhere as good as we could to that framework. But still you see that, in my opinion, we move too quickly from the development phase to the exploration phase. And that's sort of the move that you make from the early adopters to a large majority adopting this technique. And although we made that move from development to exploration, the technique wasn't completely ready yet for that, for prime time. And that's also where we make mistakes, where we introduce courses too quickly. Not only introduce them too quickly, but we're not selective enough about participants for courses. And that's something that you will see in the data that is now slowly coming through, particularly from national implementation, not from high-volume expert centers. There you see good results, but when you look at national impl implementation, you see issues. You see bad patient selection which will lead to higher morbidity, longer stay, uh, and severe morbidity. Also, newer complications that people weren't aware of that we know now. Um, and a good example is, for instance, where it went too quickly is the anastomosis. We thought we knew how to do it. Well, I think in the last two, two years, we realized two essential aspects of that, that you have to release the cuff very carefully. I need to look at the thickness of your distal cuff. If you don't do that, you're going to get technical problems and, and early anastomotic leaks with severe morbidity, of course. And what we see now, and that's going to be the hottest topic, I think, also of my talk, is that in uh, Norway, TATME has been stopped because of high local recurrence rate. Not just there were high local recurrence rate, that, but they occurred early and were multifocal. And that's something that we haven't really seen with, with other techniques. And that sort of is also seen in a specific data set in the Netherlands where we also have seen high local recurrence rates which are multifocal and that's something that we need to address um, well on the dip country side of the, uh, on the on the on the other side of that we also have data to show that in expert centers that is not an issue we show more than acceptable local recurrence rates and more important they're not multifocal so again if you implement it on the larger population a procedure wasn't ready yet to be implemented on such large scale, you're going to see issues, and that's what we're seeing now. And that's sort of similar to what we saw with laparoscopic cholecystectomy and also lap colon surgery. So I know we're going to have you on in a little bit of a longer setting at some stage to kind of go through this, but can you talk very briefly about just in general how you approach your patients on a relatively new technique? Do you tell them, listen, this is, this is a little controversial, or I'm early in my learning curve, obviously you're a little well along now, but... Is that something that we should be doing? Is it should be a separate consent form to kind of get these people in? Or like uh, Michael Solomon said yesterday in his lecture, should it be done in the, only in the setting of an IRB that these patients are doing, whether it be TATME or robotics or whatever, as they've had done in his unit? I think, I think that's a very good point, uh, and I think it should be. Uh, and that's the main issue that Norway had. Of course, the national 
surgical society had an issue with the high local recurrence rate, but where the government, particularly the Ministry of Health, had an issue with is the way patients were consented. They weren't properly consented. They weren't aware that this was a new procedure. They weren't aware that surgeons were doing this for the first or the second time. And that's where the issue for the Ministry of Health was. And that's something that immediately also was picked up by NICE. When we started in 2013, there was a document out saying these patients need to be consented specifically for this procedure. They need to be told about new complications. They need to be told that this is a new procedure, that the outcomes are uncertain, and that the surgeons are all in their learning curve. Because at that point, we were all in our learning curve. And that's also how we still consent our patients. So I think it's a really valid point. That was, that was an excellent, uh, excellent snapshot of your lecture coming up. I was wondering for the junior residents uh, back home, is there, do you have a link or some YouTube videos or something to refer them to, to this new procedure that we just talked about? So I think the best online resource that you can currently find is an app. It's called, if you go to the App Store, it's, uh, it's uh, developed by, uh, by Joop Knoll uh, and it's called the TA2Me app. Um, and there you can find a uh, historic overview of, of just TME surgery, but also how TATME was developed. A really nice colorized videos and, and, and uh, graphics that uh, really explain the technique in, in great detail. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Okay, still here, day number two uh, at ACP GBI. We're very pleased to have Professor Jared Torkington here from Cardiff. Jared, welcome to Behind the Knife. It's great to be here. I've heard a lot about it. I'm very excited to, uh, to meet you and to be part of this. So obviously, as we're expanding our global uh, strategy on BTK, we are very happy to have you know, people like yourself here. So give our listeners a little bit of background about yourself, where you're from, you know, kind of your practice right now, and where'd you train? Uh, well, I trained in London, uh, but I now work in Cardiff, capital city of Wales, a small country just to the uh, west of England. Uh, and uh, I work in a university hospital there. Uh, I'm a colorectal surgeon. Uh, I'm a professor of surgical innovation uh, there. So we have quite a broad, interesting uh, time doing lots of different things, lots of clinical work, lots of research, lots of exciting things coming our way, which is, which is quite fun. So, Jared, give our listeners a little bit of some background about this meeting. What does it mean to you? And you had a great session this morning talking about things. If you can give a few highlights of that and some of the collaborative process. One of the things that I'm really struck by coming over here is how extremely collaborative you guys are. And, and just how, hey, let's find a better way. Let's group together. Let's pool our data. Let's get everybody on board. But give our listeners a little bit of a sense about that. I think that's been a real change in the last I would say five to ten years probably uh, in the UK and Ireland, this sense of collaboration. We've been empowered trainees, we've empowered patient group. Uh, I think that the modern UK consultant is much more open uh, to collaboration than they ever were before. I think, I wouldn't say describe it as a feudal system 20 years ago, but there was certainly, you know, there was certainly a bit of antagonism between big centres and it's much more now a level playing field I think and the research session this morning illustrated that 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 we're running lots of big multi-centre trials really open to the idea of uh, uh, units joining this create program that we've create create program we've created that was good wasn't it the uh, create program is about empowering uh, small units and big units to get involved in research um, whether it's big trials, randomised controlled trials, or simply observational trials. I think you saw one of the ones that we 
we've sort of led and been involved in is the Close It trial, which is about closure of ileostomy. Uh, and actually, at first look, you think, well, that's not very interesting. But actually, when you start to look at the data from May at 900 patients, you can suddenly see patterns, and that can be practice changing. So many other trials can take so, many, so long to deliver, five, six, seven, eight years, and then at the end of that, you know, time has moved on, and the question that you started with can become obsolete. But these widespread observational snapshot studies, I think, are really interesting in determining the right questions for more research. And it's about getting people involved, and, and the world becomes smaller when you, when you do that. Uh, I think one of the things that looking towards next year with a tripartite meeting in, in New Zealand next November, um, there's some real interesting stuff going on now with both with the states and, and uh, Antipodean cousins and, and, and the UK and Ireland as well. So that, that's exciting, and Europe. So give us a sense on what's what's next for you. What's on the horizon? What's kind of in your uh, in your background that you're working on? Well, big things. We've just, we've well, we've got two or three areas that we we've, we've been doing at the moment. We're just coming to the end. We're analysing a, a study which will be the biggest study of uh, incisional hernia prevention in colorectal cancer. Eight hundred patients has taken us a long time to recruit them all. Twenty seven centres looking at a different uh, closure technique over standard closure. So you'd be familiar with, with small stitch or you've heard of small stitch. hasn't really caught on in states, I think, because a lot of the studies, BMI has been quite low. Uh, I think there's been an issue about time. We've been using a suture that was pioneered by uh, Professor Les Hughes, who was in Cardiff, uh, now sadly deceased, but he used a modified Smead-Jones suture with a double near-far suture to reinforce uh, incisional hernia repairs, and we've been using that as a prophylactic uh, uh, measure in terms of trying to prevent incisional hernias and we're just we're just analyzing our data now Eight, as I say 802 patients we recruited in the end 27 studies and I think that would be interesting um, I th- we've become quite interested as, in the department ad, in the in patient rela- related outcomes what patients are interested in whether it be LARS incontinence incisional hernias these things now that I think that as a profession we've got better at surgery in terms of mortality, in terms of morbidity, I think this focus now on on what patients think are important and getting those things right. And it amazes me, and the reason I got into the incisional hernia stuff was that it would drive me mad. You'd do an amazing operation and then you'd see a patient four years later and all they're worried about is their incisional hernia. They're thinking, this is a nightmare. People thought, they say it's just a hernia. It's not just a hernia. This is a complete and utter nightmare for everyone concerned. Resource-wise... You know, there's a danger in fixing these incisional hernias. So why not? Why are we not? Why are we not spending all the money we're spending on fancy meshes in preventing them in the first instance? So that's that's our big trial that we've just finished. That was excellent. Uh, I am learning so much here. Just I think we have a very different perspective of like clinical surgical research back in the states, but. And, you know, there's a lot a lot of people just say that you can either do basic science, but what else are you going to do in surgery, you know? that. But this is such a great avenue, focusing on patient outcomes and using those for surgical clinical trials. And thank you so much for joining us and taking the time to talk to us. This was excellent. Pleasure. Really nice to meet you. Buddy. Yeah, Jared, thanks for joining us on BTK. Thanks very much. Good morning, everybody. Uh, we're just going to get going back on, on to the program. Uh, when uh, this meeting was uh, being planned and we had a couple of uh, invited lectureships, we couldn't think of anybody better than Professor Ron O'Connell from Dublin. 
He's probably one of the best-known academic surgeons in the world. Uh, he's probably scr scratched on any papers you've ever submitted to a number of journals. He's been editor of BJS and a number of other journals, DCR. Um, if you go to the, to the medical bookshop, you'll see that the best-selling books are by Ronan O'Connell and everybody else. Uh, he's a short textbook, Bailey in Love, short textbook of surgery. We all grew up on this. He's now the editor of this book. He's a professor of surgery in, um, in Dublin. He crossed from the north side of the river to the south side of the river, from the Mater Hospital to Vincent's Hospital. He's the vice president of the Royal College of Surgeons of Ireland and will be president of the college in, in a year's time. And he's been a great friend to many people all over the world. So, Ronan O'Connell, please come and give the BDR of, uh, BDRF lecture. Uh, President, friends, colleagues, welcome back to Dublin. It's wonderful to see uh, the association here in Dublin. It's a great privilege to address you and uh, particularly to give this name lecture uh, uh, for the BDRF. Uh, I have had the privilege of being a trustee of the BDRF for the first 10 years of its existence and it is truly invigorating to see the effect uh, that it's having. Uh, you got a sense of that from the last session, the number of trials uh, that it is now beginning to uh, fund. Uh, and it has fulfilled its role of providing seed funding, seed funding essential to develop the momentum that you could appreciate from this morning's uh, fine session that we've just heard. Indeed, BODRF has now funded uh, 99 different projects and nearly 400 researchers uh, for a relatively modest uh, achievement of uh, 2.7 million sterling. And I can only see this uh, uh, beginning as a, as a stone going down the hill to gather momentum. And it has funded uh, studies that you will be familiar with, studies that are uh, in the pipeline, and several studies that you heard about this morning. But one important thing is that it's also uh, allowing people to publish. Uh, 77 uh, peer-reviewed uh, publications have, uh, or have already come from this uh, funding and initiative. But I think what's more important is that BDRF is focused on the patient. And our president, Brendan Morn, has uh, articulated this by saying ACPGI has long been ahead of the curve when it comes to involving patients in research. And by breaking down barriers between patients and surgeons, we've begun to make sure that our research agenda has the needs of the patients at heart. And we need to be cognizant of the importance of patient-related research that matters. And patients do engage, and there is a large Twitter feed that is allied with the BDRF website, and indeed, only recently, BDRF has funded the first-ever patient chief investigator for the Papu study, and this is Sue Blackwell's tweet about it. So we're making big changes in making big strides in areas that are very important to our patients. And outcomes do matter. 
Bill Shankly said, some people believe football is a matter of life and death. I'm very disappointed with this. I can assure you it's much more important than that. We spend a lot of time talking about life and death, but actually the patient-related outcomes are more important. Mind you, as a lifelong Everton supporter, I believe in the more classical statement that Neil Sat is net the optimum, that we really should focus on the best. Now, following on uh, the excellent lecture that Michael Solomon gave yesterday about decisional conflict, equipoise, and bias, I felt I should uh, really focus on just one area, and that's rectal cancer surgery, that has affected my professional life over the last 40 years. I actually started as an intern this week 40 years ago. And when I did so, we had reached a situation where the incidence of local recurrence and five-year survival and uh, anterior section rates, we felt had reached plateau levels. But of course, and Bill, Bill, there you are in the audience, one of the seminal papers that has changed my life and uh, professional life and changed all of yours is this originally observational study. There's never been the randomized trial that perhaps uh, there might have been, and that is total mesorectal excision. And Bill is to be really commended for the altruism he has shown in that he has traveled Europe and the world teaching how to do this. And this is a theme that has come through in this organization, teaching people how to do uh, laparoscopic surgery, mentoring. And it goes back to the efforts that Bill uh, made to teach people how to do TME. And of course, almost immediately in the Netherlands, uh, it was shown what a significant difference this could make when they compared the results of the CAB trial uh, with those of the TME control trial. Uh, local recurrence decreased, survival improved. This was then adopted in Norway, and over two decades in Norway, because of their uh, assiduous attention to the technique and the assessment of rectal cancer, they have reduced local recurrence and improve survival. These are effects that really have transformed the way we think about rectal cancer. This is another important study. When I started as a, rectal, as a, as a surgical trainee, it was dogma that you got five centimeter clearance below the tumor. That was what it was. And this study by Norman Williams and David Johnson and uh, Dixon, who's the pathologist at Leeds at the time, showed that in the majority of patients, you only needed a one-centimeter clearance, and that in 90%, you just needed two-centimeter clearance. And so this changed this paradigm that if you had a low rectal cancer, you had to have an abdominal perineal. And this has been extended into the current era, particularly by Eric Roulier, in Bordeaux, who has classified that in very selective patients, you can do uh, coloanal, partial intersphincteric resection, or indeed total intersphincteric resection, and that you can get comparable survival outcomes. Now, the issue about functional outcomes is a matter that uh, is, is perhaps more fraught than the actual technical aspects of it. 
Now, coming to functional outcomes, of course, we have learned from the ileal pouch story that continence depends not only on an intact sphincter, but also on a reservoir. And so the coloplasty and the J-pouch were trialed. And once you create some form of reservoir, the functional outcomes in the short term are, are better. Most of us now, I suspect, will be doing a side-to-end anastomosis rather than a pouch. Now, when I went to do my training at the Mayo Clinic, this was the big paper that had come out. Uh, it was the adjuvant chemoradiotherapy, the post-operative chemoradiotherapy following so-called curative resection of rectal cancer. And they showed that the superiority of the combined chemo and radiotherapy was related to the effects of radiotherapy on local recurrence and chemotherapy on distant recurrence. And this became standard practice in the 1980s. At the same time, in Sweden, they were developing the concept of neoadjuvant therapy, particularly short-course radiotherapy. And these are the results of the Stockholm II trial that had showed uh, that there was a reduction in local recurrence and a marginal improvement in survival if you gave neoadjuvant therapy. Now, fast forward this 15 or so years, and here's the definitive trial, in my view, that came from the German rectal cancer group uh, led by Rolf Sawyer and uh, Werner Hohenberger. And this showed that you got much better outcomes if you gave neoadjuvant as opposed to adjuvant in terms of local recurrence. And the principal reason for this was that you were uh, more likely to complete the course of neoadjuvant therapy than you were the adjuvant therapy because of the difficulties with postoperative complications. Strangely, overall survival was not different. And in fact, the same findings were found in the MRC CR07 trial that you could reduce local recurrence, but you actually didn't increase overall survival in the, in the round. An important follow-on study from the German rectal cancer uh, group, and it relates back to the primacy of surgery and obtaining a good quality TME, is this study more recently published. And it shows that in patients with uh, locally advanced rectal cancer, that it is vital that you have a good quality TME in terms of disease-free survival and overall survival. So the quality of the TME excision plane remains an independent prognostic factor for both recurrence and survival. The same group have looked at this in another way. They have looked at the incidence of complications. If you have a major postoperative complication, your local recurrence and your overall survival is challenged. So irrespective of the adjuvant or neoadjuvant therapies, we go back to the primacy of surgery and the quality of surgery in terms of the outcomes. But by the same token, we have all operated on patients who have had neoadjuvant therapy. We've done a very good, major, radical operation, and there's no residual tumor. And Angelita Habergammer and colleagues 
brought out this seminal observation uh, in the Annals of Surgery in 2004, and it has led to a profound rethink in terms of surgical practice. Sean Martin, colleague at St. Vincent's, looked at this in terms of the outcome uh, of patients who've had a complete pathological response in rectal cancer. And if you have a complete pathological response, you have a significantly better outcome. So here's an example of one of my own patients. Some years ago, 64-year-old male, screen-detected mid-rectal cancer. You can see the MRI and you can see the tumor. Uh, the tumor board decided that we should do a uh, give neoadjuvant therapy, and some 10 weeks later, this is the uh, this is the finding. Now, so my question gently to you is, what would you do? Well, we felt that it was reasonable to discuss watch and wait with this patient. The advantages: it's organ sparing. There's less morbidity. It avoids stomas. The disadvantages is it's very difficult to know if there is a complete pathological response. And we all question whether the morbidity of salvage surgery may be increased. Is there a risk of locally advanced or disseminated disease if we are leaving a primary tumor in situ? And it does commit to a very strict follow-up regimen. Well, there have been several trials that have addressed this, and I see Andrew Renahan in the study, in, in the audience, and I'm just going to briefly refer to this uh, propensity match study from, uh, from Manchester. They looked at 109 patients propensity matched and found overall that the watch and wait protocol, that 34% of their patients developed a regrowth. However, over 80% of these were amenable to salvage surgery. This meant that in these cohorts of patients, organ preservation was maintained. That does not mean that they avoided an APR. It means that the rectum, the organ, uh, the, uh, uh, and the functional outcome of that organ was preserved. And 26% could avoid a permanent colostomy without loss of oncological safety. And I feel these are important data in terms of informing the discussion that we must have uh, with our patients, and we do have. This is our experience from St. Vincent's Hospital in Dublin. Um, we have a reasonably busy practice in colorectal uh, malignancy, and you can see that over time we have uh, given about half of our patients uh, chemoradiotherapy, uh, neoadjuvant long course, and we have gone on in those who uh, have seemed to have a uh, complete response. We have given them the option. And in 13% of the cohort, we went on to a TME to find there was no residual tumor. 17% underwent further consideration for watch and wait. And if there was a residual ulcer, this was excised locally. And we ended up with 12.4% watch and wait. So overall, uh, about 25% of our patients have had either a complete pathological response or an ongoing clinical complete response. And this is at the not compromising uh, the uh, survival outcome. So going back to my patient, 
Well, this was 18 months later, and it does emphasize the importance of a rigorous follow-up regimen. And we went on to do a salvage uh, resection, and you can just see some small islets of tumor uh, there in the muscularis propria. So a salvage low anterior resection, uneventful recovery, final histology, YPT2. So the take-home message, and where we are now, is that neoadjuvant chemoradiotherapy results in a complete pathological response in somewhere around 20% of patients with stage 2-3 disease. There is the potential for organ preservation. I would say that for all of us, the selection is problematic, and it involves a good discussion, informed discussion with the patient. Sadly, there are as yet no reliable predictive markers for tumor response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and one hopes that with the advances in polyomics and other uh, techniques, that we'd be able uh, to have that in due time. One important development has been the recognition of low anterior uh, resection syndrome, LARS, as a real entity, an important entity, and the development of algorithms and, and nomograms that can allow us to discuss this with patients, because this is an important issue in considering whether or not to do a resection or watch and wait. Undoubtedly, if you give radiotherapy, you are much more likely to have significant loss. One of the important things that's happened in this country in the last 15 years in terms of cancer management was an audit that we did in 2007. And as was raised, uh, I think, yesterday in one of the presentations, we found that the majority of, of surgeons in this country were doing less than five cases a year. And in the hospitals, only 12 of the hospitals were doing more than 20 cases a year. And of the high-volume surgeons doing one more, more than one a month, they all worked in these 12 hospitals. And the government made the decision in 2008 that rectal cancer surgery should be rationalized to eight centers. Tough decision, but the outcomes have been dramatic. We have reduced the need for postoperative radiation hugely. Our, our positive CRM margins have come down to very acceptable levels, and our 30-day mortality has been halved. We now have a national cancer strategy that is taking us forward uh, into uh, the next decade. This association, uh, through the work of Paul Finan and others, have been uh, um, very involved in the National Bowel Cancer Audit in the UK. And over time, you can see the gradual increase in the numbers of patients who are having uh, minimally invasive surgery. Indeed, in our own practice at St. Vincent's, it is the default option, and 70% of our patients now have uh, a resection. The question about transferring laparoscopic technique from the colon to the rectum was a fraught one because of the importance of the quality of the TME. And the COLOR2 trial addressed that. Essentially, it found that in selected patients treated, and I would emphasize by skilled surgeons, laparoscopic surgery was associated with rates of local recurrence and disease-free and overall survival similar to those of open surgery. 
a very important trial that made, uh, uh, that set the agenda for laparoscopic minimally invasive rectal cancer surgery. Now, Michael talked about yesterday about the Alicart trial and reverting back to the data that we talked about the primacy of the quality of the TME. The objective of the Alicart study was to assess the quality of the TME in terms of circumferential margin and that clear distal margin. Big study, well conducted. And the conclusion was that given an 8% uh, difference, they were not able to show that laparoscopic surgery was non-inferior. The non-inferiority was not established. It's a tricky concept, uh, the non-inferiority trials. But the conclusion is the findings do not provide sufficient evidence for routine use of laparoscopic surgery in the treatment of rectal cancer. And Michael mentioned this study yesterday, uh, where in follow-up, that laparoscopic surgery did not significantly differ from open surgery in the effects uh, related to two-year disease-free survival and open uh, uh, and overall survival. But the curves are slightly diverging. And the problem here is that the findings do not exclude a potentially important detriment from laparoscopic surgery. So there are issues, and we talk, he talked yesterday about this important concept of equipoise, decisional conflict, and bias. And one of the real issues here is that we can all play in an orchestra, but if I play the tubo, tubo, I can't play the violin. I may play the same tune. And so if I'm a skilled laparoscopic surgeon or a skilled open surgeon, I'm probably better if I'm an open surgeon to do it open and laparoscopic surgeon to do it laparoscopically. The robot is the biggest thing in town at the minute. It's downstairs. We have one at the Mater. We have one at Vincent's. Everybody wants to have it done uh, robotically. Sorry, there are advantages. Uh, the optics, the stable fun- uh, platform, the functionality, and the ability uh, to sit rather than stand and not to have the crucifixion of spending three hours with your arms out like this. The disadvantages, cost, and, of course, learning curve. The Rollar study, uh, uh, an enormous achievement, uh, David Jane and his colleagues to be complimented on it. The difficulty is the primary endpoint was conversion to open, and it didn't show that there was an advantage for robotic over laparoscopic. This is a study from Korea, uh, which looked at open-label prospective randomized trial of patients undergoing robotic or laparoscopic surgery, and cut to the chase. The cost of the robotic-assisted surgery in their hands was more than twice that of laparoscopic surgery, and they felt it should be reserved until definitive benefits can be demonstrated. And it comes back to what Michael was talking about yesterday, decisional conflict, equipoise, and bias. Now, the other big thing that we're challenged about now is the minimally invasive uh, surgery, and particularly Taha TME. And I'm not—I'm sorry, the video is not working. Uh, but 
One of the important things is to develop the registry and uh, uh, the group with Royal Humbus and others who have developed this registry are again to be complemented. Very low conversion rate. 85% of TME specimens are complete. That's just about acceptable. Many people would feel that's on the lower edge of, of what was acceptable uh, and a very acceptable or one uh, resection rate. Low postoperative mortality and, if you like, benchmark postoperative morbidity. The more recent paper published a couple of weeks ago has shown in a larger cohort from this uh, registry that anastomotic failure rate is significant, is nearly 16%, uh, and the causes are there. And the risk factors for those uh, leaks are male gender, obesity. The two things that you would look at for both robotic and TAHA TME as make these, making the case for introducing these new techniques to facilitate doing the difficult case. So, what's the bottom line? Laparoscopic TME uh, is safe. The non-inferiority of laparoscopic TME has not been, uh, quality has not been confirmed. The outcomes following robotic resection are equivalent uh, to uh, laparoscopic from the ROLAR trial. The robotic technique is not yet cost-effective. And I would say TATME is in evolution. As we have heard, surgical trials are very difficult to, con to conduct. Equipoise does not come in a vial. You simply cannot change the color of the tablet at the end of the trial. You have made a permanent, indelible mark on your patients. And sometimes it's too early for rigorous study until it's suddenly too late. And so suddenly there have been, if you like, um, those who have leaped forward to Tahatimi and robotic surgery, they see it as a new technique, they see it as potential benefit, and yet it's very difficult outside of the registry uh, data uh, to really study it in the depth that's required. And it's important to remember that confusion of goals and perfection of means is a challenge to us. We go back, the primacy of surgery is the quality of the surgical technique. You need to avoid a complication and you need to achieve a complete TME. How you do it depends on your skill and the facilities available to you, but you should not compromise on those two. One of the most important statements I have ever read about rectal cancer surgery comes from Cuthbert Jukes many, many years ago when there was discussion as to whether or not you should do an anterior section over an abdominal perineal. And this is 1958. He was asked, Professor Jukes, we wouldn't wish it upon you, but had you one of these tumors, which operation would you choose, APR or low anterior section? And he said, I would not choose the operation, but I would choose the surgeon. And I would choose him or her very carefully indeed. And then I would say, do the operation just how, when, and where you think best. And I would ask two things. 
go to bed early and have a good breakfast. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Ronan. I'd like to call on Asha Sanapati, who's the chair of BDRF, to present the BDRF medal to Ronan. Thank you very much, Ronan. Thank you very much, everybody. A fantastic lecture, and it's, I think it's coffee breaker. Thank you very, very much. Thanks, Asha. Hello once again from Dublin. I am here uh, with Dr. Ian Jenkins. Dr. Jenkins is a consultant surgeon here um, with focus in surgical oncology and colopractology, practicing consultant at St. Mark's. Welcome on Behind the Knife and thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. You had an excellent uh, lecture not too long ago on uh, advanced malignancies and pelvic recurrence. It was a great lecture. Thank you. But before we dive into that, uh, tell us a little bit about your journey as a surgeon so far, and then maybe give us some quick highlights from your, uh, from your lecture. Okay, I, I'm a consultant colorectal surgeon in St. Mark's Hospital in London. St. Mark's is a hospital that's been around since 1835, dealing with colorectal diseases, so it's fairly well established. But I really never saw myself as being part of the St. Mark's team. I started my training in the west of Scotland, in Glasgow. I went to university in the west of Scotland, and indeed grew up in the west of Scotland and it was always assumed I would stay and indeed return to the west of Scotland but I did a fellowship in my final year of St Mark's in minimally invasive surgery and uh, to many people's surprise and certainly to my surprise was subsequently appointed as consultant to St Mark's Hospital. Um, Over that time I've been there, I've been there about 11 years now The initial focus was in minimally invasive surgery, but for the last six or seven years, I've focused more and more on advanced and locally recurrent colorectal cancer, and indeed now lead at what is called the Complex Cancer Clinic in St. Mark's, where we deal with advanced and recurrent rectal colon cancer. Uh, We have an evolving interest in HIPEC. We have an interest in intraoperative radiotherapy, Um, and we also deal with some pelvic rarities, sometimes benign, sometimes malignant. So that is kind of the journey that I've had. Um, Could you kind of give us our highlights from your uh, morning lecture? So today I was talking about surgery for pelvic recurrence, and we've assumed that means recurrent rectal cancer. And we discussed the various options that might be open to pa- uh, patients with this uh, poor prognosis situation. Uh, we discussed that the opinions and biases have changed over time in that we're becoming more willing to consider more radical interventions to try and salvage patients. Uh, And we see that by doing so in carefully selected patients, we offer some survival advantage. Um, In doing so, the most important thing is to obtain a complete pathological resection that is termed R0. We know that's the predominant predictor of long-term outcome and we know that if we achieve that we offer survival advantage. How we do that involves a very complex decision making that is multidisciplinary. We run a specialist complex uh, cancer clinic in St Mark's where we have radiologists, specialist nurses, uh, some of the colorectal surgeons and we spend a lot of time with those referred just going through the imaging discussing with them what is appropriate for them, what they want to get out of it, and what they're willing to 
to do, what they're willing to lose in terms of the legacy of potential surgical treatments. I mean, our, 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 that process is very much patient-centred. We focus more and more on quality of life. Uh, we rely heavily on our radiologists. We regard high-quality systematic radiology as being of central importance to our decision-making. And based on that, we've been able to evolve newer surgical approaches to try and optimise the chances of a complete resection. Uh, we often use the analogy of an egg yolk and egg white to our patients, the egg yolk being the tumour, the egg white being the healthy rind of tissue. And we tailor our surgery to obtain an appropriate healthy rind or white run about the tumour. And in doing so, we see that we can improve the uh, chances of a complete resection. Our data suggests that there is an improvement in survival as a result. And it has been allowed, it's allowed us to venture into some of the more contentious areas, the sort of tiger country in relation to uh, pelvic salvage surgery, the disease high on the sacrum, the disease extending out into the pelvic sidewall and out through the sciatic notch. And uh, much to our uh, uh, pleasure, I would say, is that we see that we can offer an increased complete resection rate by using some of the more novel approaches to surgery that we've introduced. That does, of course, come at a cost. A lot of this salvage surgery is morbid. There's a significant financial hit to hospitals that choose to do this. So one of the issues we have currently in the UK is how the National Health Service will uh, continue to allow us to do this without actually providing appropriate tariffs, mm -hmm. the commissioning for such services, and I think that will produce more debate over the next day or so during the conference. Um, the other thing that would be very helpful is to have a greater understanding as what, of what is happening across the UK in patients that might otherwise be salvageable with exemptive surgery but are not given an opportunity, or indeed those that choose not to undergo surgery or get best uh, oncological therapy or best palliative therapy, how long they actually survive and if there are significant, truly significant dif differences in outcome. The novel approaches that you mentioned, could you describe that for our listeners? Yeah, I'm delighted. The biggest area of contention, I think, in exenterative surgery is how to deal with the pelvic sidewall. And many years ago, maybe about 10 years ago, we had a, a dentist from Belgium with a pelvic sidewall recurrence in collaboration with the orthopedic oncologists and our own colorectal surgeons. We developed a technique that is essentially a modification of a posterior approach to the hip to try and optimize the amount of tissue that we can take from the pelvic sidewall uh, to obtain a clear margin. It, live, it allows us access to some of the bones uh, externally in the pelvis that are more difficult to access from an internal traditional approach. And we've done maybe around 120 plus of these procedures either as part of an exenterative procedure or part of a secrectomy, whatever. It provides a bit of a component to overall exenterative surgery. And to our initial surprise, we found a fairly high complete resection rate of around 86% using this approach. Um, it does carry its morbidities. It does require static nerve excision, either partial or total, and that has raised concerns regarding functional aspects of recovery. But from our own experience, we know that provided there is a functional ipsilateral femoral nerve and appropriate physical therapy rehabilitation, maybe the use of a heel splint if there's a foot drop, we can get these patients walking. Mm -hmm. So there is an opportunity to offer them salvage where others might have previously regarded that as entirely unjustifiable. The other area that has been 
regarded as tiger country is the disease affecting the high sacrum. That's from S12 and above, mm-hmm. would be up to the L5 level. And in the past, to obtain a complete resection, some have considered total sacrectomy, others have considered disarticulating through L4-5, and some units in the States have done this very successfully. But it's very big, morbid surgery, and we have taken a slightly more abbreviated approach to this to try and remove the, just the amount of bone that needs to come off by taking the sacral cortex or the lumbar cortex off of the bone. And we've done a small number using this approach, this HIS or high subcortical sacral resection, done about 32 in patients that would have been regarded as otherwise unsalvageable, we've given them an opportunity of a complete resection in about four out of five patients, 80% or so. So those are the novel approaches that we've tried to develop to try and optimise the areas that have been difficult to manage surgically. That's the, uh, that's really good stuff. And I would like to now change uh, subjects and kind of get your uh, two cents on how you deal with um, patients that do have complete clinical response after chemotherapy. Um, and what's your, do you favor the wait and watch approach? No, that it, I think the it depends on the proportion of patients that you offer chemotherapy to. In the States and other parts of Scandinavia, there are many patients that undergo chemotherapy as a primary at, approach to rectal cancer with a view to then uh, performing surgery. Um, uh, The problem we have with watch and wait is that it's not that we do not see that there is potential benefit there. It is because there are many patients that need to be irradiated that we would not normally irradiate. Our practice is uh, one that rarely uses preoperative as a neoadjuvant chemoradiotherapy. Even if there's node-positive disease, even if there's T3 disease, even if there's anything that potentially requires an extended resection. Based on MRI, if there is a clear circumferential resection margin, our choice in St. Mark's is that we proceed directly to surgery and then we give adjuvant chemotherapy. And that is a very contentious approach because some worry about what the risk of complete resection would be, the risk of R1, etc. But actually our R1 rates are very low. We see that our patients transition to adjuvant chemotherapy probably more rapidly. Mm -hmm. They do not have a period of time where they have no systemic therapy. If you give neoadjuvant chemoradiotherapy, you have to wait a period of time to see if it works. And then there's a window. And we know that the longer that we wait, there's a greater chance of complete pathological response. Mm -hmm. But that leaves a patient up with up to three to six months without any meaningful doses of systemic chemotherapy. And what do these patients die of? Metastatic disease. Local recurrence in the presence of good TME and good imaging is not as much of an issue as it sh- is, is perceived to be. Local recurrence rates should be less than 5%. And my co- our concern in St. Mark's is that we over-irradiate many patients. Examples being, if somebody had a lymph node up against the mesorectal fascia that was entirely contained, many countries would give radiotherapy. We would go straight to surgery. And the uh, the numbers of patients that in our practice that get neoadjuvant chemoradiotherapy is only 10 to 15%, which is a marked difference to many other institutions. So you can see that the watch and wait, if you're liberally using chemoradiotherapy, is entirely justifiable. Yeah. That's fine. I have no problem with that. But the problem is I would then have to irradiate a substantial proportion of patients that I would normally otherwise proceed directly to total mesorectal excision. 
And we're seeing this more and more of an issue where patients are learning about watch and wait. They see there are perceived advantages and they're asking that they should be considered for this. And these are patients that we would ordinarily proceed directly to surgery. Mm -hmm. So how do you counsel them? This is very difficult. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the moment, some in Europe would still regard watch and wait as an experimental approach. However, some of the data are very compelling. And the thing is, you've got to look at the number needed to treat to decide whether this is a valid thing to do to change one's practice. I would assert that there's a significant number would need chemoradiotherapy to even yield a substantial amount, a, a significant number of responses. And more people would not respond than people that would respond, meaning that the majority would still get surgery. Right. And the problem is they then have been irradiated. And as we know from Soren Lauerberg's work in Scandinavia, in Denmark, that there is a significant increase in severe LARS, low anterior resection syndrome, in the presence of radiotherapy, a fourfold increase. So any attempt to avoid radiotherapy seems a sensible thing, yeah. given that the majority of patients will not get a complete response. Many of them will still recur. Mm-hmm. And if you are going to irradiate, there's a distinct worry that you will not provide a functional result that a patient will be happy with. So that is part of our rational, rightly or wrongly, uh, why we would be very sparing in the use of neoadjuvant chemoradiotherapy. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this segment. This was uh, really good information and we love talking to you. Thank you very much. Hello once again. and. Right now, I am joined with Dr. Jennifer Davids. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Davids is a travel fellow here in the UK. She is a practicing colorectal attending at University of Massachusetts. Welcome on Behind the Knife. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how did you come about this opportunity to become a ASCRS travel fellow? So it's been a great opportunity. In terms of how I was given the opportunity to participate in the Traveling Fellowship, uh, um, those basically those who um, won an award of the abstracts from the 2018 ASCRS meeting uh, were selected by the Young Surgeons Committee. Oh, that's an excellent, excellent thing. So how, um, as part of your uh, research project, uh, you presented some of your work here at the ACP GBI meeting. Tell us a little bit about your research. Mm-hmm. So my research interest um, pertains to the experience of women physicians, especially women surgeons. And so the project that I did here was to look specifically within the specialty of colon and rectal surgery. And so specifically what I did was um, with my co-PI, Dr. Nellie Melnichuk, uh, we uh, attended the 2017 ASCRS tripartite meeting in Seattle and we brought our study team, and not only did we look very carefully at the program to see the representation of women among workshop directors, speakers, and moderators, but we also looked more specifically across uh, specialties and uh, subject matter to see what women were actually speaking on. We compared the proportion of women uh, in the formal program to the proportion of women in the conference, um, attending the conference overall. Um, so that was the first part of it, and essentially it boils down to the fact that um, there was no statistical difference between the proportion of women included in the formal program to speak in some capacity and the female attendees of the conference, which was great. Um, the second part of the project where we looked at 
speaker introductions. And I had seen a paper before uh, where pre-recorded internal medicine grand rounds were given and the investigators looked at how female versus male um, invited speakers were introduced and they noticed a gender discrepancy. And so I thought it would be very interesting if we looked at this on an international perspective using the meeting as our data. And so we essentially went to the meeting and attended almost all the live sessions and compared how um, speakers were introduced by moderator. And we looked at the gender of both the moderator and the speaker. And we found that overall, almost 60% of people were introduced professionally by a formal title versus um, a more colloquial or informal just by first name only. But what we did find that was interesting and has been shown in other meetings as well subsequent to ours is that um, women were more likely overall to introduce a speaker formally um, compared to male uh, moderators. However, the big difference was when you looked at the gender of the speaker. So with uh, women moderators, they introduced male and female speakers equally um, in terms of the percentage of uh, professionally uh, professional titles, whereas what we really did see was that there was a difference with the male uh, moderators and that when they presented a female speaker, they were half as likely to use a professional title compared to when they were introducing another male speaker. So that pretty much summarizes our findings with the work. That's that's so interesting. And in this day and age, this awareness is what people need. You, uh, and there's this implicit bias in our in our own field. And studies like yours are very helpful in bringing awareness to these um, to these topics. Thank you for joining us on Behind the Knife. And Thank you. Congratulations on your traveling fellowship. Thank you. That wraps up our day two in Dublin, Ireland. I hope you are enjoying our coverage live, and we will be back with our last day of ACP GPI tomorrow. Till then, dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day.